In this episode, I get to speak with Dr. Drew Timmermans. He is someone I discovered uh, quite some time ago and really enjoyed his videos and content around various therapies called PRP, prolotherapy, stem cell, and a myriad of other uh, therapies that are basically leveraging our body's natural healing ability, married up with technology and advancements in technology to kind of reintroduce it to our body to help accelerate the healing process, um, as well as a number of other naturopathic and homeopathic methods to enable and empower the natural healing uh, capabilities within our body. So you'll hear terms of regenerative medicine, there's integrative medicine, uh, that are some newer uh, approaches to medicine, I guess you could say, where they're creating a continuum rather than these absolutes, uh, especially when it comes to kind of some of the modern medicines, uh, kind of forgetting about or not really acquainted with a number of those things, as well as something that Dr. Drew advocates a lot is in-depth analysis and in-depth, you know, exams to really understand the individual. I've heard it said before on probably other episodes that we're all walking chemistry sets. And so you can take a lot of uh, macro data and, and generalizations and apply it as the starting process but we have to look at how each individual responds and the underlying conditions that may be producing the inflammation. And so uh, Dr. Drew does a great job in explaining those complex circumstances, some of the new therapies that they use, these evidence-based therapies. So um, definitely get your uh, science hat on, take notes, and uh, enjoy. All right. Well, my guest today is Dr. Drew Timmermans, owner of the medical practice Regenerative Performance located in Gilbert, Arizona, just outside of Phoenix. Welcome to the podcast, Drew. Thanks for having me on, Scott. Yeah. um, As we were saying offline, it's been a long time coming. Um, Since I started this, you were one of the earlier folks I discovered and really enjoyed your your content um, because it's, it's been really informative. It gets into some forward thinking or newer technologies or uh, not technologies, but methodologies and treatments um, Mm -hmm. to help or some that are maybe even reborn uh, to some extent. But um, it's always great to to learn new ways that you don't see at the macro sometimes. Mm -hmm. So great to have you on. Um, So before we kind of get into the practice and and what you do um, at regenerative performance, you know, brief background on yourself, you know, how you got into medicine and kind of maybe got down this path of uh, terms like regenerative medicine and integrative mm-hmm. medicine. Yeah. So uh, born and raised in, uh, in Canada in Southwestern Ontario. So um, I thought I noticed an accent. <laughs> I, uh, I always, I'm a little proud every time somebody says that, cause I've now been in the States for uh, going on eight years. And okay. uh, so it's nice that I still, I don't say a as much anymore, <laughs> but I, I still maintained um, my uh, accent that, that comes out every now and then. Um, yeah. So born and raised there. Um, I um, did my undergraduate studies in, in kinesiology. So human movement sciences uh, at the university of Western Ontario. And probably to, to kind of give the backstory on how I got into medicine and, and then, uh, digressed over into where I am now with naturopathic medicine. So in high school, you know, uh, in our careers in civics class, when we were exploring different options, uh, the idea of being a physician kind of came across my table. And uh, my parents had actually uh, given me some like old school anatomy textbooks, not textbooks, but books when I was a kid, yeah. kind of like those, uh, the like the see through ones where every time you flip the page, like a new layer, it's kind of yeah. shown on the page. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was the human body, right? So first page was the skin and then you flip that and then you got to the muscles and then you flip that in the organs. And so, um, so I'd always been fascinated with, with the human body. And so in, in high school, I thought, yeah, I, I want to uh, go down the path of medicine uh, in order to, to help people. And my, uh, my nanny, my, my grandma had passed away from ovarian cancer uh, as I was entering high school. And so, you know, that was kind of a, a pivotal thing for me 
you know, that was my first exposure really to, you know, how, how does medicine affect me as a human and the, the lives around me. And so I think that was also kind of uh, influential in my career path uh, for medicine. But in, in high school and, and even in undergrad, I didn't know about naturopathic medicine. I didn't, it just was never on my, my radar because it, it's just not talked about much, right? In, right. in Canada, it, the doctor is an MD and that's it, right? And in the States yeah. here, we have MDs and DOs. So like when, you know, majority of the population, you say, oh, I'm a physician, they'll think, oh, MD or DO, um, except in some areas where naturopathic medicine is uh, a little bit more accepted and, and widespread. But uh, so I set my path on that, um, wrote my MCAT, uh, scored well, had a great GPA. Um, you know, I was a varsity track and field athlete. And so, um, you know, I had, I had a really great resume, but I went and applied for med school and, and had uh, some interviews and uh, I didn't get accepted. And you know, and I was actually just on a, uh, recording a podcast yesterday and we got deep into this discussion, but um, I realized recently that that was the universe telling me that this is not your path because I knew people that were in my cohort that applied with me and got accepted and I knew their MCAT scores because I wrote the MCAT with them and I knew their GPA because we were friends and openly talked about it and they got accepted and I didn't. Right. And so that was a really big blow to me initially because, you know, I wanted to be a cardiothoracic surgeon. Like I, like that's what I was really passionate about at the time. And so, uh, so I thought, okay, I'll take a year off. I will, you know, boost up my extracurriculars because maybe I didn't do enough volunteer work. Maybe I got to go do stuff in a hospital, whatever. Um, and so I started working as a personal trainer at Good Life, which is one of the largest, well, is the largest um, gym chain across Canada. And during that time, you know, I started to explore more the um, holistic or alternative route of, of health, just because it's what I could help my clients with, right? I could talk to them about nutrition, I could research supplements to see what might help them with their pain or, you know, uh, whatever else that they were going through. Right. And I, so I, I really got exposed to this. And then I would be getting excited when, you know, patient or clients would come back and they'd say, Oh, I had my checkup with my doctor and I went from two blood pressure medications to one, or I, I was on uh, three different uh, cholesterol type drugs. And, and now I'm down to two, like they were getting off medications because the exercise and nutrition stuff we were doing. And I was pumped. Like those were like the best appointments to my clients. Cause I was just, I was helping them get off medications. And yeah. so one of my clients, um, recognize that and she goes hey you should really look into naturopathic medicine I'm like what is this right so I go yeah. and that night I, I look online and and research it and instantly it was like uh so there's six tenets of naturopathic medicine and in a gist it's you know uh doing no harm um treating the root cause treating the whole person using uh the healing power of nature which also includes like our body's ability to heal um and I read those things and it resonated with what my internal uh, locus was for medicine and health. And it was, it confirmed what I believed about health without anybody putting the idea in my mind, right? I didn't have anybody saying, oh, you should look at health this way. No, it was like, this is what I personally believed about health. And holy crap, there's, there's a place out there that that's what they believe too. And instantly it was just like, I'm, I'm changing paths. Like I don't want to be a surgeon anymore. I want to go down the naturopathic route because this resonates with me. Yeah. Um, and then, so there's only uh, seven schools across the U S and Canada. And so I did some research and uh, looked into a few different ones, had some interviews and uh, flew out here to Arizona and was like, yeah, I'm not going back to Canada. <laughs> Sorry, mom. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, yeah. yeah. Sorry, mom. I am uh, now going to be in the hot sun all the time because it's much better <laughs> than six months of winter. Yeah. Right. So, so that, so that was the path that I, that took me down to naturopathic medicine. And, and once I got here out in Arizona and started school, I was kind of a little uh, lost in what I wanted to do because I didn't really, I didn't know what existed in the kind of sports medicine world, because during my time as a, a personal trainer, 
you know, I really started to also dive deep into the musculoskeletal medicine side of things because a lot of my patients were in chronic pain and that type of stuff. And, and so I thought, okay, well, you know, I don't really know what there is for sports medicine. I can't, and I was so naive at this time when I first started school, it's just like, there can't be anything in naturopathic medicine for sports medicine, but I was like, that's fine. Like I'm gonna, you know, so I explored, you know, I checked out the different clubs at school for, uh, you know, for gastro and cardio and oncology, just trying to like feel things out to see what I might kind of focus or specialize in. Um, and, and kind of during all this time, backtracking a little bit, um, right before I came out to school, about six months before I was in a car accident in Canada um, and ended up uh, herniating a disc. And so I had really, really bad low back pain that no one could ever really figure out. Um, and the treatments I was doing were just palliative. Uh, I never had any cortisone injections or surgery, uh, thankfully, but I was still just in chronic pain. And so when I finally discovered that, oh, there are places that do sports medicine from a kind of more naturopathic standpoint, I went out to Florida to a conference uh, that was heavily focused on that. And it was actually a, uh, a conference mainly of MDs and NDOs, but they were getting on kind of the fringe side of, uh, of sports medicine with PRP and prolotherapy and all these different injections that weren't covered by insurance. And so while I was out there, I, uh, there was a, a, an MD, his name is um, Brad Fullerton. He's based out of uh, Austin, Texas, who is probably like influential in, in my path. So he did an ultrasound examination on me uh, for my low back pain. Cause I talked to him and, you know, told him it had been two to three years now, chronic low back pain, no one could figure it out. So he, you know, evaluated me. He's like, it's your, you have some tears in your lower trapezius muscle and you've got a strain of your iliolumbar ligaments. And, uh, two days later at the end of the conference, he treated me with PRP and three months later I was pain-free Really? and my, my, oh yeah, my mind was blown. I was like, that is exactly what I want to do for the rest of my career was help people who are in chronic pain and use things that, yeah, they might not be covered by insurance. Um, and, but it, it helps people. Yeah. And so that's kind of what then set me down this, this whole path towards, uh, regenerative medicine. That's really cool. And like chronic pain, you mentioned that and you hear chronic inflammation too is like, that's like the biggest issue. It seems as I'm learning going, going through this process of issue in America and really in, I guess, first world countries, even um, where there's this, the low grade constant issue that just lowers the quality of life. Mm-hmm. That is just not really talked about or it's kind of like you were even alluding to is like kind of blown off it's like you have to just accept right hitching your step now for the rest of your life because that just is what it is that's just how how i how i'm made or that's the circumstance so i'm just like almost the victim of circumstance right and it's and i think part of it is is because the allopathic model is is not really set up for that type of medicine, that type of healthcare, right? It's, it's very set up to be, you either have this disease or you don't have this disease. There's no, this kind of gray area. Um, And one of the things that I've talked about a lot on, on social media is that like healthcare and health is not a cliff. It's not like, and mind you, yes, there are instances in life that can look like a cliff, right? You're in a car accident and you go immediately from, healthy, happy to disabling chronic pain, but in the chronic, you know, uh, disease place there, it's not a cliff. It's this, it's this hill. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's, you start at a state of health and you slowly go down, you slowly go down. And at some point you start to notice symptoms, but you keep going down, keep going down. But if you're not, if you don't fit the criteria that the allopathic model has defined as disease, then a lot of your, and it's part of this is insurance. The, the issue is insurance. Insurance yeah. isn't going to cover if you kind of have a disease. You either do or you don't. Yeah, it's binary. Approved for treatment or you're not going to get approved for a treatment, right? Right. And so I, I think that's where, why naturopathic medicine is starting to grow, why functional medicine is starting to explode, because there are all these Americans who are suffering and the current system for chronic disease has parts of it that are broken, that doesn't recognize these kind of dysfunctional states as opposed to a disease state. 
Yeah. And so you kind of mentioned a couple of terms mentioned at the beginning, integrative, and that mm-hmm. seems to be a newer term. And even the term, the name of your, your group is regenerative medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, can you like kind of quickly define those terms a little bit? Yeah. So, um, so I'll, I'll, de- I'll define kind of the way that I think of them, um, as opposed to a formal, formal definition, but integrative medicine, the way that I think of that is it is using all available tools in order to accomplish the job at hand. And so one of the ways that I think of myself and other integrative practitioners or integrative physicians is that we're kind of like general car- or general contractors, right? We're not a plumber, we're not a, you know, electrician, we're a general contractor that can kind of do and use different tools. And so when I need a medication for a patient, I'm going to write that prescription for that medication. If my patient needs a referral for surgery, I'm going to refer for surgery. If they don't need that medication or don't need that surgery, I'm going to use the other things that are still evidence-based, right? It's not, I'm just pulling things out of thin air and saying, oh, I think this will work. No, there's legitimate research behind this stuff. And it's saying, okay, well, you don't, you're not a good candidate for surgery at this point. So let's look at different supplements, herbs, regenerative injections, lifestyle stuff that we can implement to make your suffering less and hopefully get you to a place where you're not suffering at all. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's using this blend of the old school traditional medicine of herbs and nutrients and sleep and exercise and that type of stuff and blending it with what we have from conventional Western medicine, which is pharmaceuticals and surgery for the most part. Yeah. Um, so that that's integrated medicine. Regenerative medicine is um, uh, generally how I think about it is um, I'm trying to, help the body. I'm trying to help set up the body to heal itself. So the healing process, you have to have some form of regeneration in order to heal. And, and so the therapies that I'm doing, whether it's an injection, right? Most people, when they think of regenerative medicine, they think of regenerative injection therapies, things like prolotherapy, PRP, autologous stem cell therapy. But at the end of the day, there's also a lot of other things that can help the body to heal itself. So if somebody is in a chronic state of inflammation that's causing, let's say, knee osteoarthritis, there are non-surgical, non-injection things that we can do that can help to slow that down. And so that's kind of where I think about uh, and how I think about regenerative medicine. Okay. And so it's kind of assessing the baseline of a particular client or customer to see where they are and make sure that they're kind of operating optimally. Is that a fair way to say? Yeah, in, in part. And then it's um, the regenerative medicine aspect is really, really focused on uh, orthopedics. So it's focused on people who are, who have joint pain, ligament pain, nerve pain, tendon pain, uh, that type of stuff. Okay. And you mentioned a couple of the different um, approaches or, or modalities or treatments um, one of them you used and got you down this path, which was the PRP and, and the mm-hmm. prolotherapy. So PRP is what platelet rich plasma. So can you yeah, kind it. of explain um, kind of what that is and why someone might need that? Uh, if there's any other examples like your, your own personal story. Yeah. So, um, so I'll, I'll broadly talk about, so regenerative injections in general are, uh, isn't it's an approach to injections that what we are trying to do is actually get tissues to heal. Um, the original regenerative injection prolotherapy actually originated in the fifties and the sixties, um, by, uh, by a few medical doctors who, um, uh, had suffered some chronic pain and chronic injuries that, uh, the surgeons of the time were just like, yeah, there's nothing you can do for it. And just so just suck it up. And they're like, um, no, I'm going to try these different things. Um, and so from there, developed this whole system of treating more than just uh, inside the joint, right? And so in the conventional system, if you have knee osteoarthritis, usually you're just going to go in if you're getting cortisone injections, they're just going to put cortisone inside your knee joint. And that's going to be it. They're not going to treat other things. Right. 
And so um, what developed from the 50s, 60s and onwards was this approach to look at the tendons, the ligaments uh, that are surrounding the, the different joints and to assess those to see if they're contributing to pain and then treat those with uh, initially were thought to be, they thought they were just sclerosing, which means to scar. So what they thought initially was, oh, we're going to inject this irritating substance, which eventually was dextrose, and it's going to basically scar the tendon or the ligament. So that way the tendon or ligament is more stable and therefore less painful. Um, since, you know, then we've discovered that um, there is some mild sclerosis that happens, but most of the time we're not actually scarring anything on the inside. We're actually helping to stimulate cells to produce collagen and collagen is what makes up our tendons and ligaments and cartilage and that type of stuff. And so we're helping to kind of, uh, I don't usually like saying regrow, but in essence, we are kind of helping to insert more of these collagen fibers into damaged tissues that is going to help them to be stronger. And when they're stronger, they're less painful. Um, and so, so that's kind of the ultimate goal of all of the regenerative injections, whether it's prolotherapy, whether it's PRP or even uh, stem cell therapy. So, so let me yeah, ask go ahead. So is it kind of using, um, is it external or internal substance, like your own personal chemistry, and then kind of reinserting it into your body to enable your body to do what it kind of naturally does or accelerate that? Yeah. So when with prolotherapy, um, it's dextrose, which is a sugar molecule. And so we take that from a vial. So like we get that from a pharmacy. Um, but when we look at PRP, platelet-rich plasma, and then stem cell therapy, which comes from either the bone marrow or your adipose tissue, both of those um, are, uh, they come from the same person. So when I had PRP done on me, it was my blood that then went in a centrifuge, spun it, they extracted out the, the portion that is really rich in platelets. Platelets are these cell fragments that contain growth factors and cytokines. And when they come into contact with damaged tissue or they're activated, they release all of these, um, these uh, growth factors and cytokines to heal different tissues. So that's actually platelets are, are very involved in when we injure ourselves. So if we roll an ankle, our platelets are going to help orchestrate the, uh, the, the healing response that we're going to get by calling in stem cells and, and uh, stimulating the uh, fibroblasts, which are the cells that make collagen. Also, when we get a cut, fibroblasts are going to be one of the first responders on the scene. Um, or sorry, platelets are going to be one of the first responders on the scene in order to secrete their uh, growth factors to help wound healing. So these okay. platelets are really great at helping to heal different things. And so, um, you know, back in the early 2000s, when uh, Alan Mishra uh, first kind of came across this for orthopedics, um, that's what the, the idea is, let's take these growth factors, and let's put them back into an area that's not healing well. And voila, things started to to heal better. Very cool. It's amazing how you're kind of using the natural occurrence of your body to heal and then just kind of amplifying it or a yeah, little bit directing it. Yeah. Basically is how, how I kind of think about it is we're okay. taking something from one area of the body and we're redirecting it to a new area of the body that the body has kind of forgotten about, right? Cause if you've had a low back pain for five years, for the most part, your immune system, which is heavily involved in healing is kind of just forgotten about that part to heal. Hmm. And so we are just redirecting and kind of poking and saying, Hey body, you forgot to do something here. Let's help you. And let's start a new healing response. Got it. Very cool. That's, that's pretty fascinating. It is. Um, I've heard you on some of your recent posts on uh, social media, which again, by the way, the tons of great content there is peptides. So mm -hmm. um, that is very new to me that it's about as far as I know in depth, but uh, uh, other than watching some videos, but can you expound on peptides, the use of those and, and the value? Yeah. So, um, so peptides are a class of molecules that are going to fall within a, a certain number of amino acids. So an amino acid is the most basic building block uh, of proteins. And so we start with a single amino acid. Um, and then once you hit a few amino acids, you can then call it a peptide. 
And then, uh, so a peptide will just kind of be a long string of, uh, of amino acids. And then at some point when that gets large enough and start the peptides start to fold on themselves, then we get what's called a protein. And so a, a peptide is, um, is not necessarily new and unique uh, in, in the healthcare space and because we have peptides that float through us all the time. It's just in the last kind of five to six years, these uh, peptides that are taken from our body can be really, really beneficial for healing and they've kind of hit more, more mainstream. So um, all the peptides that I use in clinical practice and that a lot of other doctors will use are actually all naturally occurring in our own body, which uh, makes them really, really fascinating because they are not going to have some of the side effects that are commonly seen with pharmaceutical drugs, right? Because the way that pharmaceutical drugs are made is they're made to be very, very, very targeted at a specific thing that the, the researchers have determined to be, uh, you know, crucially important. Uh, so an example is uh, cholesterol drugs like statins are going to specifically get at one enzyme, which is called HMG-CoA reductase, which is going to stop the production of cholesterol. So they've designed this molecule to interact with that one thing uh, very, very specifically. But because of that, and it does it so strongly, there can sometimes be side effects that happen. Not always, um, and some drugs are worse than others, um, but that is unfortunately, you know, it's, it's a catch-22. It does a really great thing, but it might have some side effects. Yeah. The peptides um, have a kind of more broader and more gentler action than, um, than our pharmaceuticals. And so, for example, if we're going to start somebody on a peptide like BPC-157, um, we may see you know, improvements in their joint pain, it may just take four to six weeks for them to start to notice that because it is, um, it's a little bit slower acting because it's not as direct and specific as something like ibuprofen, right? right. Everybody's got joint pain knows you take ibuprofen, usually within 20, 30 minutes, you're feeling better, right? right. It doesn't last long term, but it has a very strong, acute effect. These peptides, though, they take longer, but because of our body's great ability that, you know, we, we have these peptides already in us. So they obviously serve really important functions is we can actually get full resolution of symptoms sometimes with these peptides. I've had many patients come to me who have had chronic joint pain and we start them on peptides like BPC-157 or thymosin beta-4. And three months later, they're 90 to hundred percent pain-free. We stop the peptides and the pain doesn't return. And so we can actually get some true, healing and regeneration with these peptides, which I think is absolutely, absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Especially like you were saying, you know, it's naturally occurring in your body. So your body's not going to reject it per se, or, you know, some potential unintended consequence of some of the, the other medications like an ibuprofen that, you know, over systemic use, you know, could start wearing on other things like your, your kidneys and whatnot. Significant consumption, but, but nonetheless. Yep. um, Okay. Um, the other area that I found fascinating that you had mentioned, it was probably in the last week or two, was the uh, talking about medications. The unintended consequence at times can be also the, the, the nutrient deficiency mm-hmm. on how because of what it's doing to help, uh, it can wear on other aspects of your body. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really a fascinating piece. Maybe you can expound on that a little bit. Yeah. So, um, so something that, you know, I'm doing with every patient, new patient that I have is I'm taking a look at their medications um, and I'm trying to assess if their, uh, any of their symptoms might be due to a depletion of a specific nutrient, whether that's a vitamin, uh, a mineral uh, or another type of compound like omega threes. We're trying to see if, their symptoms correlate with that. So a great example um, that we can use is uh, proton pump inhibitors. So something like omeprazole. Um, because those proton pump inhibitors decrease stomach acid, you uh, can become depleted in certain nutrients that require um, a very acidic stomach to be absorbed. So the main ones are going to be iron, zinc, and magnesium. And so patients over time can get really fatigued while taking proton pump inhibitors. 
And it could be due to a, an iron deficiency, could be due to magnesium deficiency. Zinc deficiency usually doesn't cause a lot of fatigue, but that uh, can cause uh, issues with the immune system. So people will get sick more often if they're zinc deficient. Um, uh, night blindness can occur, right? Where we have a reduction in the ability to see at night. Um, oh, wow. That can start to happen with a, a, a zinc deficiency. Um, and then we can also see um, uh, some issues with uh, uh, testosterone production and, and hormone production uh, and that type of stuff. And so, um, and so we're always trying to figure out, hey, is this a not necessarily a side effect of the medication, but just an, an effect of the medication? Right. And so um, and, and a lot of doctors aren't talking about this with their patients. Now, there are some that are more well-known. Um, and so anybody who uh, might have rheumatoid arthritis or something, they take methotrexate, their doctors are prescribing folic acid, um, uh, which is B9, uh, alongside it because it's a very well-known depletion of, uh, of a drug like methotrexate. Um, but metformin, for example, uh, depletes uh, vitamin B12 and it de- depletes vitamin B9. And both of those, when you have depletions in those, you can get peripheral neuropathy. Well, one of the complications of diabetes and metformin use is peripheral neuropathy. And so sometimes it's, it's difficult to tease out is, is the peripheral neuropathy of this diabetic patient due to their disease? Is it due to the blood sugar issues that, you know, clog up the smaller blood vessels, which then result in less blood flow to the nerves, which cause peripheral neuropathy? Or is this a folic acid or a B12 deficiency from the medication? And so it's sometimes hard to, to piece that out, but, um, but yeah, so usually when I'm working with patients, we're trying to replete those. Um, if I'm starting a patient on a medication that I know, you know, usually has a pretty strong nutrient depletion effect, you know, um, we're, uh, supplementing that alongside the medication just so we can reduce the chances of them having long-term issues, uh, because of that. Okay. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's something that doesn't seem to be talked about and it's not, uh, it's just an observation as a lay person, but a lot of those things are not being looked at, that it's very siloed and you're addressing right. the one thing without understanding the corollary effects to other aspects of your body or, or even if you do, like as the patient, you may not even consider it like, Oh, I'm feeling a little lethargic. Oh, maybe I didn't sleep well. And you kind of blow it off, but then it continues right. on. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, they're just a, uh, and, and I think too, you know, um, the, the, with the allopathic model, you know, um, I think it is, it's phenomenal and terrible at the same time that there are, um, so strong of specialties and subspecialties where doctors are in these silos, right? You are an interventional cardiologist or you are a gastroenterologist or, um, you know, you can even get very specific in the surgical world, you know, where, um, you know, a, an orthopedic surgeon might only do shoulders. Right. And, and that, that is, I find that is absolutely phenomenal because in my opinion, if somebody has, uh, something that is very, very extreme, it's very life or death, you know, it could alter their world. You want to be with the specialist who has, who dedicates their life to what you have and can help you. And that's going to be your best odds of, you know, getting out of uh, that sticky situation that you're in. Right. Yeah. But in the chronic disease space, chronic pain world, that uh, it, it does a little bit of a disservice to patients because it's, it now becomes, well, that's not in my specialty and I don't know about it because rightfully so, you know, I, I don't, think that every interventional cardiologist needs to go learn about gastro be, to know, you know, the difference and, and how to, to work that up or know about orthopedics because they need to be very focused and specialized. Right. And, but then when someone comes in and they've got a longstanding chronic problem, it now becomes they're working with four or five different doctors because each of them have a specialty. And then there's not really a lot of crosstalk because Doctors don't have time to, you know, round table every single patient that comes in that's seeing other doctors, right? Yeah. And so, you know, and, and again, goes back to what we were talking about earlier. I think that's why naturopathic functional integrative medicine is exploding right now because people are wanting 
someone to address their gut pain with their joint pain, with their heart issues, because they're not actively dying. They don't need a surgeon to, you know, put them on a a table and to save their life, but they need a doctor who can spend more than 15 minutes with them to hear about all their different issues and try to make connections, especially for example, when you start seeing, you know, subclinical deficiencies, um, you know, in a, something like magnesium or vitamin B6 or vitamin C, those vitamins and minerals affect so many areas of the body. And so you have to, you have to take a whole body approach in that sense, because you can't just look at, oh, well, this magnesium is causing some, uh, some issues with muscle cramping and then just ignore everything else. Cause it's all integrated. Yeah. Yeah. It's all interwoven. And, um, yeah, that's been a, for me, a recent discovery of like going consistently getting the blood work up and we change, like we're walking chemistry sets at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we know that every, generally every seven years, your body has a big transformation, but then there's so many different external factors that seem to influence, you know, the environment where you live, your home, exactly. uh, activities, stress, exercise, or lack thereof. Yep. <laughs> um, so it's definitely a fascinating thing. And just, it, we kind of mentioned it at the beginning it's so, so many things become siloed or binary rather than like a continuum, right. Mm-hmm. Of, of healthcare or health wellness, right. whatever that is defined as it's very bucketized and it's either or conversations. Right. It yeah. seems. Mm-hmm. Um, so as somebody who's kind of in the naturopathic and looking at things a little differently than, you know, the standard medical approach, are there things that you're looking at or observing right now or investigating that is kind of, I'll say on the horizon, so to speak, or looking at things a little differently? Um, I mean, I, I think a lot of what I do is already that, right. The injections, the peptides, those types of things. Um, you know, uh, a lot of the, the MDs across the country don't know about peptides, Um, you know, there's probably only a few thousand practitioners across the various specialties, um, and and types of physicians and practitioners that, you know, actively utilize peptides with their patients and things like that. Um, and so those are the big things, um, you know, I'm always trying to figure out new ways to, to help patients with, with chronic pain. And so sometimes that's, you know, going back to the basics, you know, with stuff. And so the last kind of six months, I've really been diving in deeper onto the, um, uh, the nutritional side of, of helping patients to heal, not necessarily with, you know, what, what diet to eat or, or whatever, but more like what vitamins and minerals become depleted in patients who are in chronic pain and how can we, what strategies can we use to, um, improve that and, and sometimes even not have to do injections and other times to use it in conjunction with injections and things like that. Cause at the end of the day, if, you know, if someone is subclinically deficient in vitamin C, for example, um, you know, they're going to have a harder time building more collagen. And again, the allopathic model looks at like, Oh, you can't be deficient unless you have scurvy, like you're not deficient in vitamin C and that's grossly incorrect. Right. You, again, it's, there is this state of disease, which is scurvy. And then they think that if you don't have scurvy, you are healthy. And there's this huge gray box in between where a lot of people are going to be deficient in in vitamin C. And so just, so that's really what I've been looking into kind of the last six months is how can I, um, you know, do lower level therapeutic things, right? It's not high tier, it's not stem cell therapy, it's not cool peptides, just like what basic things can I do with people so that way they are better set up to heal either on their own or when we come in with an injection, you know, they're going to have a better response. Maybe just from starting some, uh, some different vitamins and minerals, they could get 20% better outcome from their PRP treatment. And so now the money that they're spending, because these things aren't covered by insurance, the money that they're spending is going further for them. And that's kind of what excites me and what I'm really uh, diving into lately. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, sounds like just kind of equipping people that can empower them to do, 
you know, improve their own wellness that, because sometimes it does seem whether it's, you know, medical or personal development or whatever, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So it's kind of hard to get past that first step or get to that first step yeah. um, of, of medicine uh, or yep. getting back to healthiness. Um, yeah. So what is, a, and what is the a nice thing too, with that real quick, the nice thing yeah. too, with that is, is because things like magnesium, the B vitamins, vitamin C, all that stuff affects almost every cell in the body. It's if I'm doing this stuff for their orthopedic issues, right? Their joint pain, usually they're reporting improvements in other areas of their life. And that just, I mean, that makes me happy, right? If I can improve somebody's sex life or somebody's mental, emotional status, I did, did some things for their joint pain that are just going to affect the whole body. You know, I, that's a win-win for me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned, you know, even the mental, uh, the mindset piece of it, if you have chronic pain, that's going to wear on your mind, which is going to mm-hmm. spiral a lot of other things emotionally and how you even respond in life, whether it's work or your family and yeah. that interconnectedness of just, like you said, the holistic aspect of, of the body, the interplay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, so real super tactical, what would be a practical recommendation to those listening that who are learning about this for the first time or what, what's a step for them to take that you would suggest? Yeah. So, um, so usually the things that I, I preach the most about from a generalized standpoint is going to be sleep, nutrition, hydration, and exercise. Sometimes I throw in like social connections or meditation, mindfulness, which I think is important, but um, I think the four basic pillars really need to be sleep, nutrition, hydration, and exercise. So on the sleep front, uh, most people should be waking up five days out of the week refreshed. Most people wake up one to two days out of the week refreshed, and that's usually a Saturday, Sunday because they don't have to set an alarm and they can go and actually sleep for an extended period of time. And a lot of my patients, when they first start working with me, they don't wake refreshed any days of the week. Every day of the week is is a struggle to get out of bed. Yeah. Um, And so because sleep is so important to our body's ability to heal itself, because that's when we do most of our healing is while we sleep. It's a huge, huge uh, emphasis and focus for people. Um, So to get better sleep, usually what I tell patients, the biggest needle movers that I call them is going to be light exposure. And so we are exposed to way too much light after sunset. And that is triggering our brain and telling our brain that it's time to be awake. When in reality, we need to signal the body that, hey, it is time to start sleeping. And so um, usually after, after sunset, what I tell people is to turn off at least half the lights in your home. And if you can turn off more, turn off more. That's number one, because that's just going to reduce the amount of light that's hitting your eyes, which is going to uh, reduce that signal to produce cortisol and produce more uh, melatonin. And then the other is to get, is to use blue light blocking technology. That's going to be on your phone, on your computer, and also in the form of glasses. So on Amazon, you can get, blue light blocking glasses for 20, 30 bucks. Um, and I, t- all my patients who have issues with sleeping, um, we get them to wear them as soon as the sun goes down. Um, and really, yeah. And most patients will notice. So like right now in Arizona, the sun's setting around seven 30. If I put those on seven 30 by eight 30, I'm like, I am ready for bed. Like, it's not even a question of like, okay, I'm going to choose to go to bed at eight 30. It's like, I am now tired because my brain's actually getting the signal that it's nighttime. And so we then get to, you know, have better sleep, but it's not a forced sleep. It's a, oh, I'm actually tired. So now I'm going to go to bed a little bit earlier than tossing and turning until 10, 11 o'clock, for example. Yeah, because you touch on something I've been looking at in the last month or so uh, where you can get it on your phone, but also the glasses as well um, mm-hmm. on the blue light. And, I, and I, you know, I'm somebody who, I mean, that was the be- premise of this podcast was sleep issues and it's still mm-hmm. kind of a roller coaster. So I, I may be investing in uh, some blue light glasses. I would highly, highly recommend it. Yeah. Um, so that's the, the sleep side. Uh, hydration is super simple. It's uh, whatever your body weight is, divide that in half. And that's how many ounces of water someone should be drinking minimum on a daily basis. And so 
you know, I weigh uh, 180 pounds. And so every day I meet, my goal is to get 90 ounces of water per day. Wow. Now, uh, climate is going to adjust that a little bit, right? So here in Arizona where it's drier and it's hotter, you know, usually I'm going to add probably anywhere between 15 to 20 ounces onto my water. So I'm usually shooting for a hundred to 110 ounces. And that's if I'm not working out. Cause obviously if I go work out, I'm going to sweat more. And so we need to be repleting that, uh, as well. And usually I think we're doing half a liter, uh, per, uh, hour of, or 250 to 500, depending, um, MLs, uh, per hour of exercise. And so, so when most people you talk to them, they're maybe getting 30 to 50 ounces of water per day. And, you know, most people are at least 200 pounds, right. For, for guys, and so most people are just not getting enough water into their system. And now the kidneys are decently good at trying to adjust for that and reducing urine output, but it's long-term strategy. That's not the approach uh, that we want to take because you can still be uh, subclinically dehydrated. Your cells can be dehydrated. Your fascia can be dehydrated. Your joints can be slightly dehydrated and all that can contribute to the perception of pain. And so uh, focusing on, on water uh, on the nutrition front, um, I'm not really, everybody has a diet that they're going to respond best to. I personally respond really, really well to a paleo like diet where it's super high protein and meat content and, uh, you know, really low, uh, starch content. And I do well, I feel phenomenal when I eat like that. I have patients where they feel God awful when they eat like that. Right. Right. And they need more of a vegetarian type of diet. And so, um, but the one consistent thing I found is that we need to eat what nature gave us. Right. You need it all. It just depends on how much. Yeah. And it's removing the stuff that is literally made in a factory, right. Where they're taking chemicals and they are adding things together and blending things together to make, pop tarts or to make, you know, Doritos chips, like those, there's no Doritos farm that you can go pick a bag of Doritos. <laughs> right. But there's, you know, uh, so it's, it's just getting back to not eating crap food, processed food and eating things that nature and the earth is giving us. Right. And then figuring out what flavor of that you want to be, right? Whether you want to go carnivore, whether you want to go vegan, whether you want to go paleo, whether you want to go whatever else there is, pagan. Like there, there's so many varieties and flavors and everyone's got to figure that out. But it's just getting back to just eating real actual food that contains nutrients, not this nutrient depleted stuff that we're getting out of factories. Yeah, yeah. And I think again, you know, we talk about degrees. It's like a better best kind of, approach and you know what they're all viable like you said you got to figure out what works best for you and you know i've also heard from a nutritional standpoint it's always good to even you know like intermittent fasting and changing the diet up a little bit to kind of awaken your system yeah to some extent i don't know the science behind it but i've always heard and read a lot of things yeah 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 no and and i am a, a really big fan of intermittent fasting and we use that a lot with um with my patients who you know either they have a metabolic condition or they've got a cardiovascular condition or uh, even an orthopedic condition because uh, when we do those uh, extended periods of fasting whether that's uh true intermittent fasting where we're doing you know a 36 hour or 72 hour water only fast or if we're doing what's called time restricted feeding which is where, you know, we, it's like the 16, eight, where you fast for 16 hours and you only eat in an eight hour window doing that stuff really starts to drop inflammation. Um, and part of it is, uh, it's a little bit twofold. The one part is it's helping your body to deal with the inflammation that it has because it's energy is not being expended on digesting food. So, um, we have a set amount of kind of capacity for the work our body can do. And that's why when we sleep, we heal the most because our body is not focused on moving on, you know, on digesting and all that other stuff that we mental processing that we have to do during the day. And so when, um, when we give our, our gut some rest, the body can then take that energy and it can use it for other things. And one of the things it can use it for is, you know, dealing with chronic injuries and, and chronic inflammation and that type of stuff. The other layer to it is, um, 
is that people are usually eating very highly inflammatory foods because they've got chemicals in them. They've got different things that might be triggering their immune system. And so just a reduction in the insult on the body from all that crap is going to be helpful in, in dropping inflammation. And so uh, usually a, a twofold thing that, uh, that we see there with intermittent fasting. Okay, great. And then last is the movement, right? Is exercise. So most of the time, you know, I, I would love if all of my patients and everybody, you know, got in and did some form of, you know, intense, more intense exercise a few days a week, kind of got 30, 45 minutes, whether it's hit or it's some longer distance stuff or it's some strength training. But at the end of the day, I just want people to do more, right? So if you're not exercising, just going for a 10 minute walk every single day, is going to do way more than doing nothing, right? right? If you're already walking six, seven days a week for 30 minutes, changing out one of those walks for some strength training to build some muscle mass, right? Strength training. And, and so our muscles are literally anti-inflammatory machines. When we exercise, our muscles produce what are called myokines, which is basically little signaling molecules that come from the muscle. And those are very anti-inflammatory to our body. And so when we exercise, we are literally at the end of the day, helping to reduce overall systemic inflammation. Now, sometimes that's difficult because people might have chronic pain that stops them from doing certain exercises and things like that. And so that's where a lot of things need to be individualized and, and what I will work with patients on, or I'll refer them to a really great strength coach that I have out here in Arizona. Um, and, and he'll work with them on that. Um, but at the end of the day, we just, we need to get muscles moving more and get them activated and people to get stronger and yeah, adding on a few pounds of muscle mass is probably going to be a very beneficial thing for most people. That's an interesting detail. I, I had not heard the anti-inflammatory aspect of it. Of yeah. So one of the big ones is IL-6. So IL-6 is a, uh, is a cytokine that is produced in different areas of the body that can uh, basically trigger other processes to happen. When IL-6 comes from our fat cells, it is a pro-inflammatory adipokine. And adipokine just means it's the signaling molecule from adipocytes, from, from, uh, from fat cells. So IL-6 from adipose is pro-inflammatory. It causes inflammation. When IL-6 is made from muscles, it is anti-inflammatory. And so the same molecule is both inflammatory and, and anti-inflammatory. It just depends on where it comes from because it, it's going to act in the local area that it's being secreted and have those different effects. Wow. And so that's where, you know, we see this uh, duality aspect of something like IL-6, but there's other things too, that our, uh, our muscles are going to create in the process of uh, when we exercise that are anti-inflammatory. That is fascinating. I'm going to have to dig more into that after this, for sure. That is really cool. Um, so we're definitely coming up on time and went a little bit over, but uh, grateful for all the insights, man. I mean, it chock full of information. I could probably talk for another hour with you on, on all this, but um, I wanted to close out with a couple of personal questions. Yeah. So what are you reading right now? Oh, man. Um, I'm partway through... Uh, um, the body keeps the score. Have you heard of it? No, I've not. So it's a, a really, really fascinating book on uh, by a um, an MD. He is a uh, psychiatrist by training, and he deals a lot with um, patients with uh, PTSD and trauma. And so, probably about uh, I'd say six to nine months ago, I really kind of hit a. Uh, a roadblock with a patient who was in chronic pain. And every time we would do our injections with him, he would relive the traumatic experience that resulted in this, in this chronic pain. And it would be very, very um, troubling for him because this accident that he had was over 50 years old. Wow. And so, um, and I've, the body keeps the score has been on my reading list and, and, people have recommended it to me for literally like four years. And I just, I never had the purpose to go sit down because that's usually how most of my education, my personal learning occurs is I have a patient 
that I've hit a roadblock with or that I need to know more about. And so I dive into that so that I can help that one person, which will end up helping other people. Um, but just with how much information there is out there, I would get so overwhelmed if I was just reading to read. So I'm usually very targeted. Sure. So anyway, so um, so I went and got this book to try and really understand more how traumatic experiences can be stored in our body, in our connective tissue, and patients can have uh, you know chronic pain that is uh, related to that event. Um, and so, so that's the book that I'm uh, slowly getting through uh, right now. Is the body keeps the score? That's awesome. Yeah, it's um, kind of similar topic where I've had some conversations on the emotional aspect and the physical pain, like you're saying, and um, how a lot of bronchial-based things can be emotionally driven. Mm-hmm. Um, that that for whatever reason, it seems like a lot of emotional strain and stress and anxiety ends up residing in your lungs. Uh-huh. Um, anyway, that's a conversation yep. for another that's time. Fascinating. Um, so music or podcast, what are you listening to? Um, podcast, definitely Peter Atia. Have you listened to his? Yeah. I just got turned on to him. I had not li- listened yet, but. Oh, it is. I mean, you can go back. He has so many, so many great things in there. And uh, what I, so what I really appreciate about his podcast is he explores the, um, the non mainstream things in medicine, right? He's looking at fasting, he's looking at the ketogenic diet, but it's always, always, always from a very rigorous scientific approach. And, um, and based on research and where there's not research and it's his clinical experience or clinical opinion, he's always forthcoming about that. And so it's not these other podcasts that people will go on and just say, spew a whole bunch of stuff that's, you know, not really based on research. It's kind of their opinion, but they act like it's research. No, he is very, it is very clear cut. Um, and then his show notes. So I subscribe for his the monthly membership, which gives me access to his show notes. Um, and so every single article that they discuss is linked. And so like from my standpoint, from, you know, a clinician side of the equation, when he talks about something with, you know, sleep and chronic pain or sleep and cognitive issues, like I can go into his show notes and I can pull that paper and I can read it and I can digest it. So that way I can talk better with my patients about it because I'm now educated on the primary research and he just kind of opened the door and, and, and kind of gave access to that. And so, um, so that, so that, and then Gary V. I'm okay. Yeah. Of, of Gary V. And so, yeah. um, you know, and I actually haven't listened to Gary in probably, um, I don't know, two months or so, probably since this, uh, the whole pandemic thing kind of started. Um, but not, just because it was, I'm just focused on, you know, building my practice and doing that stuff. And and I'm in a heavy learning period right now. Um, And so, but yeah, but those are the two podcasts that I probably uh, are the only ones that I would consistently listen to. Okay. Um, What is your go-to rest and recovery method? Um, Sleep for sure. Um, Sleep and then uh, cold exposure, I'd probably say, and, and nasal breathing. I'm going to use all three of those. So sleep is the, the given. Um, but uh, nasal breathing exercises, post-exercise have been really, really uh, powerful for me. Um, so uh, I've gotten pretty close with Brian McKenzie, who I'm sure you're aware of. Yep. Um, and him and I have spent a lot of time talking about this stuff and um, and I incorporate a lot of breathing exercises with my patients, uh, just because of how powerful that is. Um, but I'm a very, um, high sympathetic tone individual. And so because of that, I sometimes have a really hard time after an intense workout coming down from that workout, right. Getting back to a normal body temperature, normal status quo. And so the nasal breathing exercises afterwards have really, really helped me to downregulate that sympathetic nervous system, allow the parasympathetic nervous system to show itself more so I can be more cool, calm, and collected throughout the day after uh, a really intense session. And then on the cold exposure, uh, I'm not using that as a direct uh, recovery method. So it's not like hopping in an ice bath. 
you know, after a really hard workout to, you know, decrease DOMS or anything like that, because right. I actually think that's detrimental to performance long-term. Um, but using it on off days and away from exercise to help train the body to react better to stressors. And so again, it kind of goes back to this main theme of setting the body up to appropriately respond to a stimulus, right? The cold exposure and doing that in conjunction with nasal breathing that can help people to respond better to a stressor, whether that stressor is exercise, whether that stressor is a divorce, whether that is just the common cold or, or the flu or anything else, right? Setting up that body is super important. And so those are, that's probably my biggest ones. Awesome. Yeah. Um, the cold exposure, I've definitely been reluctant to do, but uh, <laughs> I'm working on my sleep. I tell you, it's tough. But I mean, like you said, it's got some good value to it. And, you know, regardless of the training or like you said, dealing with the stress is like, it doesn't have to be an elongated time, but just do it. So at least one, you can develop some mental toughness and be able to respond more calmly or cleanly to a, to a catalyst. Um, rather than like this big spike in the net freaking out and Yeah. 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 So well, Drew, uh, again, grateful for the time. Uh, glad we, we were able to connect and, um, you know, have a great day. Appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode. Lots of great practical tips covered here today. And if you know someone who could get some value out of this episode, please share. Be super grateful uh, we're all about being well and improving our, our life. And so if someone can get value out of this, please remember to uh, subscribe, review, and share. Again, grateful for you. Remember, be rested, be well.